Hey everybody, this is your host, Matt Castellini, and welcome to Chicago Capital. We have a great episode lined up today, but before that, a word from our sponsors, World Business Chicago. As the city of Chicago's economic development organization, World Business Chicago drives inclusive growth and opportunity for our local tech, innovation, and startup ecosystem. They recently announced the 2022 Chicago Venture Summit Future of Food, their new flagship conference to highlight why Chicago leads as a global capital for food innovation. Follow World Business Chicago on LinkedIn and Twitter for event details and other related news about our city's economic progress. Connor, thank you so much for joining Chicago Capital. Um, this is take two. Uh, there are usually always is some technical issues with the show, but we, you know what, we grit and we soldier on and we get it done. So uh, thank you for joining us. I think we'd love to start with a bit of your background and hear more about how you came to, to bridge investments, to venture capital, et cetera. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for having me on. Excited to be here. Um, I'm actually originally from Dallas, Texas, so a bit of a transplant here in Chicago, um, but excited to be part of the Chicago capital ecosystem now. Um, I, I made it up here to the Midwest originally by going to Notre Dame. Uh, I graduated there in 2013 and headed back down to Dallas where I worked in uh, investment banking with a boutique firm called MHT Partners, focused primarily on sell-side advisory for lower middle market M&A, and then transitioned into a private equity role with a middle market LBO-focused fund called the Riverside Company, where I was for two years, came back up to Chicago and the Midwest generally, uh, getting my MBA at Kellogg. Uh, I was there for a couple of years and graduated in 2020, and since then have been in venture with Bridge Investments uh, for almost a year and a half now. So excited to be here talking with you. So I have to ask right off the bat, uh, private equity to business school, what spurred sort of that decision? You know, for a lot of people earlier in their career, private equity seems like, um, I think, the end-all be-all in terms of jobs. So, uh, so, so what spurred the decision to, uh, to effectively hit the reset button in some sense and uh, go back to business school? Um, I'll be completely candid. I thought I was going to go back into private equity after business school, for sure. Um, not because I loved it so much, but because I was you know, satisfied. You make good money. I think I was learning a lot. Um, but the timing with the role that I had, and I think this is fairly normal of most kind of associate roles is, you're kind of there for two or three years, and then you're expected to make a decision of whether you want to go get an MBA or kind of commit to a full-time role at your fund. For a lot of reasons, including geography, I think that uh, you know Riverside Company wasn't the perfect fit for me. And so frankly, I viewed business school as a great way to um, take a beat, focus on networking, and maybe figure out a fund that aligned more with my uh, how I viewed the role of an investor, and we can get into more of that if we if we talk about how I eventually got into venture. But um, was thinking, you know, lower middle market private equity post MBA, and then during those two years at Kellogg, really fell in love with venture after I learned what it was. To be honest, 
Um, and yeah, then found myself pivoting, even though I never really thought that was the point of going to business school. I'll also add in that my wife also had always wanted to go to business school. So we were applying together and our GMAT scores were expiring. So the timing works out well to go back to business school. <laughs> so some pragmatic things going on there. Yeah. I get it. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. That MBA expiration on the GMAT thing. I think that pushes a lot of people to that decision. Uh, yeah. it's, a, it's an ingenious partnership, I think, that the GMAT has with business <laughs> schools it's to put that limit on it. Uh, no, I'd love to talk a bit more about your experience uh, at Kellogg and your MBA. Um, sure. What are some of the things I think you've touched on some of them, but you you were pretty active uh, during your MBA. You, you got into a couple of different roles on the startup and on the investing side. So I'd love to dig a little bit deeper about your experiences. And then we could touch on what was really the spark in the moment you realized, you know, VC was where instead of going back to PE, you wanted to focus on VC. But we'll start with some of the initiatives you took in you know, business school to kind of broaden your skill set and horizons. Totally. So my mindset going into Kellogg was uh, twofold, I would say. One, you know, I had spent my career working in investment making in private equity, but not actually touching anything operationally. And I felt like in my in my role at Riverside in private equity, there was kind of a puzzle piece missing in diligence and companies having never worked for an operating business before. Um, that I felt like I was missing. And so perhaps naively, I thought I'll use these two years in business school to start a business and worst case scenario, um, you know, we'll learn something from it. And, you know, turns out starting a business is, is really, really hard. And I wasn't very good at it, but, you know, we, we took an effort to, to do a business for about a year. And I say, we, me and a couple of my classmates at Kellogg, um, business school is a very safe, risk-free place to give entrepreneurship a go. And so I do think in retrospect, it was the right decision. But through that process, kind of started making the contacts in BC and Chicago that ultimately drove my interest in the space. So that was definitely kind of in my first half of my Kellogg experience, what my core focus was. Um, was working on this business, which I'm happy to talk more about. I actually would love to see how this would have worked out in a COVID world, but we were focused on a virtual fitness concept that we affectionately referred to as FitFam Virtual Fitness. Uh, you know, it basically amounted to us doing aerobics classes on Instagram Live, so certainly not any sort of real business, but it was a great learning experience taught me how to do things like place Facebook ads, you know, use MailChimp for enterprise and stuff like that. So skill sets I definitely still use in my role today as a consumer VC. Yeah, no, I think FitFam, first off, excellent name. I, I got to know the origin <laughs> story behind that one. Outstanding. Love it. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think it's it's a great point about using business school as kind of a almost a risk-free environment um, to expand your kind of business acumen. And you really, I think, got Got in the weeds uh, for sure, uh, more than I think most uh, business school students who want to go back to investing normally do. Um, but so that was sort of the entrepreneurial side of things. Um, you spent time at Listen Ventures while at Kellogg, yeah. and I think you also eventually made your way to Bridge. Um, did you always purposefully know that consumer is the space that you wanted to end up in, or how did you kind of narrow that focus? Was it serendipity? Yeah. Was it intentional? We'd love to hear that. Yeah. So at, at Riverside, it was the bulk of my focus was consumer, but like a lot of generalist 
um, private equity funds. I also spent a lot of time looking at industrial manufacturers or value added resellers. I vividly remember this one. The first deal I ever looked at was a conveyor belt distributor, which is about the most boring business you can probably think of. Um, but I, that was definitely what piqued my interest in consumer. And I think at the time, it was for the same reasons that I hear a lot of people talking about when they talk about why they're interested in consumer. It's the tangibility of understanding what you're diligencing, the ability to go look at something in a store or shop on their website, feel it, experience it, taste it, whatever it might be. I think my interest in consumer VC developed in a different way during business school, um, in part thanks to uh, one of your former guests, Rick Decide, who was both a professor for FitFam Virtual Fitness, as well as a mentor of mine while I was working at Listen during business school. Um, but, but the reason that I got interested in consumer from a venture standpoint is I actually think that consumer uh, and direct-to-consumer math specifically lends itself really well to my background of having worked in a fairly technical capacity in investment banking and private equity. And I don't think a lot of people think about that. And I still notice it today when non-consumer VCs send me consumer deal flow, the interest level is usually something like, you know, I tried the product and I really like it. No one really talks about, you know, the unit economics are great. You know, they have a really differentiated customer acquisition channel, things like that. And I actually think my skill set in later stage investing applies better to consumer investing than maybe more traditional SaaS investing in venture capital. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's such a great point. I would actually love to dig just a bit deeper on For sure. when somebody does send you a deck, where do your eyes key in on first? Like, where do you immediately look to see what metrics are in the deck? And, and, you know, very briefly kind of give a sense for listeners of like what you view as let's say best in class with those metrics. For sure. So, and, and I think this also dovetails into why bridge was such a great fit for me coming out of business school. We at bridge are a fairly metrics-driven investment fund, and particularly on the consumer side, which is only about half of our, our focus. But you know, the first thing I'm looking at when I open a consumer deck are the same thing everyone else is looking at. It's the background of the founder, the market opportunity, how, how uh, prevalent and urgent is the pain point, and how well do I think on first glance they're solving it. But what I think we start thinking about maybe more so than others is glancing at the unit economics and even outside of that initial glance, taking a real deep dive into them. And so one thing that we prioritize at Bridge is breaking even on first purchase. So what does that mean? To acquire a customer, you have to pay for that in some way, whether that's through paid channels like Instagram, Facebook, et cetera. Um, or through Google search, or even just through your own time and effort, depending on what type of company it is. There's a cost to acquiring every individual. There's also revenue associated with acquiring every individual, and there's a gross profit associated with every individual. So for us, what's really important to see is that when a, a particularly a product company on that first sale, they're breaking even on the cost to acquire that customer. So just to put numbers of that, if someone has a $50 customer acquisition cost, um, we need to see that, you know, for example, their initial AOV is $100 with a margin of 50%. Um, and that tells us that from a lifetime value perspective, they're starting at 1x 
LTV to CAC on that first purchase with the opportunity to expand from there. Um, we're pretty rigorous about making sure we check that box on every consumer deal that we do and making sure that we independently validate and believe that those metrics are true because uh, spoiler, oftentimes the metrics that are presented in the deck, we don't agree with. So that's, that's a lot of our focus at Bridge. I love that way of putting it. Not that the metrics are, are necessarily uh, in any way falsified, but we just, we don't right. we have a differing opinion based on yeah. our analysis of the data. <laughs> I, I, I like that. I like that approach. No, that's actually really interesting. I don't think we've, we've really gone that in depth on, on direct to consumer unit economics on the show for sure. Even when we did have, uh, you, you know, your, your, your mentors, uh, Jeff and Rick from, from listen. Um, no, I think a question I have is just, as of the years, as the years have progressed, um, maybe in the last couple of years, you mentioned Facebook, you mentioned paid acquisition. Have those gotten more and more expensive for brands that are attempting to, you know, acquire customers, or are there general trends and takeaways that you're seeing uh, today? For sure, it's definitely a hot topic in the consumer investing community. Um, the TLDR on the topic is. Last year in April, Apple came out with an iOS update. I forget the number of the update, but effectively to increase privacy, um, there, there were restrictions on the data that is accessible for both businesses and uh, advertising channels. And what it amounts to is basically difficulty in consumer brands to create and retarget audiences that they've already identified as being high converting audiences. Lower conversion means you're spending the same amount of dollars to acquire fewer customers, which results in higher customer acquisition costs. Um, my maybe hot take is I think this is actually a good thing. Um, I think what it does is it separates really awesome consumer entrepreneurs from those who were relying on Facebook and Instagram too much and weren't thinking about omni-channel uh, customer acquisition as well as um, delivery methods. So I think we've always prioritized businesses that have diversified away from Instagram and Facebook. Um, but I think today we definitely put a finer point on making sure when we're looking at an, uh, a consumer business, they have to have line of sight to selling uh, IRL, whether that means through their own own showrooms or through um, other retail partners or wholesale, as well as diversifying into other digital customer acquisition channels outside of Instagram, Facebook, and hopefully organic channels. Um, so whether that's email marketing, uh, experiential marketing, or otherwise areas where your cost is time and effort versus dollars to Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, no, I think that's that's actually another point I was going to hit on as well. I feel like direct to consumer it definitely exploded in, you know, the 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 2010s and I think that as mm -hmm. a channel was was extremely I, th I think it was all the rage. I think it was a huge portion of venture back funding towards consumer companies probably was was in relation to or companies that were tapping that channel uh, for a number yeah. of different reasons. But I feel like now as those companies have sort of matured in a lot of ways, it's like we've come full circle. Like they are selling right. these products in real life. They realize there is still value to be had from retail channel, uh, especially at the growth stage. Is is that just because do you think of the, of the uh, changes to Apple's iOS policy? Are there other reasons no. for that? No, I think it's because more and more businesses saw 
uh, direct to consumer as a interest, interesting channel. And so as more and more brands have been competing for ad space with the same eyeballs, it's become more expensive even before the iOS update. But I think the iOS update was just kind of punctuating and a more acute event on what was already occurring as an overall trend. But I mean, you know, I'll give credit to Rick and Jeff um, and not claim this is my own opinion. I mean, one thing they've been saying for years at Listen is direct to consumer is a channel. It's not a type of business, right? They probably said it on your podcast, I would guess. Both, both um, of them said it. Both of them <laughs> said it. I, I was going to get that out at some point as a disclaimer, just if they listen to this, I do remember Jeff and Rick, I swear to God, I remember. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's that's very true. And probably more and more people are thinking that way today than they were even a year or two ago. I, I would love to switch a little bit or I guess zoom out um, in, in a sense and talk about uh, Bridges uh, philosophy of investing. Um, mm-hmm. Essentially, you know, the idea of you you will lead rounds, but typically most of the time you co-invest. I, I'd love yep. to talk about kind of the role and the differences between those mentalities uh, that you've noticed as a, you know, it's very early on in your career. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, you know, I think for us, the strategy to co-invest has been because of being a lean team, I think, and, and time allocation, frankly. So, you know, where we like to spend our time uh, as a team of two full-time effectively is to dig into what I've already mentioned. It's to dig into all the areas that other VCs also focus on market founder, you know, product market fit, as well as spend a lot of our time focused on the unit economics. We like to do all that, even though, you know, we might not command as much of a founder's time as the lead investor. We know that. And so, where we want to spend our time is on all of those things that we think drive the fundamentals of the business rather than worrying about executing things like legal documentation, background checks, um, negotiating a term sheet. And so there are pros and cons of being a lead and a co-investor for sure. Um, As we evolve and grow as a fund, I think we will consider the opportunity to lead more, but I think in our DNA is this attitude of focusing on the fundamentals of a business rather than, you know, insisting on things that a, that a lead might insist on, like having a board seat and, you know, being involved with more uh, routine strategic discussions of a business. Not to say that we're not active, but we also recognize that we're career investors and oftentimes do not have the operational expertise that a lead investor might if, say, for example, they're laser focused on fintech or um, you know, some other strategy that we haven't spent a ton of time thinking about. Do you feel that the, that decision, um, I would almost say your model is in a sense hybrid or it's becoming more, it sounds like the strategy is to be a little bit more hybrid in the future. Have you found that that really does open up the playing field though for bridge? It really feels like there's probably no deal you have, you can just reject on site because it's already got a lead investor or, or, you know, you might have to lead. When does that, when does that really become a benefit? Do you feel like, when did you realize that was a benefit as a young VC that you could sort of do both if you really had to? Well, I mean, look, let's, let's be candid here. We're investing out of a $12 million fund. So in leading an investment is very difficult when you're writing the size checks we are, which are, you know, 250 to 500. And so in the instances where we do lead, we have to be opportunistic. We do not compete in competitive processes where there are multiple term sheets being given without much diligence. Um, 
And frankly, when we do lead, it requires raising outside capital, which we've done on many occasions, but it is not something we write a check out of our, our core fund with. That's the case with our investment in a business called Haku, which is a race registration platform for endurance events down in Miami. Um, you know, the amount that we have in that business would not be, our LPs would not be happy if that had come out of the, the $12 million fund. So, you know, it's something where we're more opportunistic in nature and having both Jason Thomas and myself come from later stage investing backgrounds, we're very comfortable with the process of leading. But from a portfolio construction standpoint, today, for us with the lean team, it makes more sense to follow. And we also think there are benefits to following, which we've already talked about. And from a from a broader consumer perspective, which is where you spend most of your time, any mm -hmm. areas or or theses that that you're particularly interested in in 2022 or that you've invested into in 2022? Curious about that. For sure. Um, yeah, I mean, look, our overarching thesis is investing in metrics-driven businesses. Um, so that doesn't lend itself necessarily to thematic investing like other VCs do. That being said, I definitely think there are specific areas of interest that, that we've been looking at for a while, um, one of which is, is women's health. Uh, fingers crossed, hopefully we'll be doing uh, a deal in that area soon. I think we view that as an underinvested area um, that, frankly, maybe people just haven't spent the time or gained the comfort to get up to speed on. Uh, I also think that e-commerce infrastructure and storefronts is an area that we're diving more into, as well as alternative customer acquisition. So we've talked about this, um, this concept of customer acquisition costs getting, getting higher and higher as more and more businesses are diving into the same acquisition channels. We think there's an interesting opportunity to leverage our consumer knowledge, as well as B2B SaaS expertise to kind of create hybrid investing opportunities for alternative customer acquisition channels. So what does that mean? I think we've seen businesses that are trying to facilitate IRL uh, selling experiences. We've seen SMS businesses, that SMS is a very promising channel right now. We've seen more businesses getting into curated marketplaces where a consumer is gaining trust with a marketplace rather than a brand. And so if you can get into that marketplace, just like you can get into a retailer, that creates a really interesting um, dynamic for customer acquisition. So those are three, three kind of things that are top of mind for me right now. But at the end of the day, you know, our, our fund thesis is, is investing in businesses that have uh, promising unit economics on the consumer side and on the B2B SaaS side, which is a whole area of the fund that we haven't talked about, uh, investing in verticals of interest for us, which are, are varied in many. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like there has to be some huge synergies in at least the e-commerce space and just what's gone on post-COVID with, with so many businesses now trying to adopt an e-commerce strategy and all the infrastructure and struggles that go with that. Yeah, I mean, it's not a perfect example, but in terms of the, the exact topic we're discussing now, but a business we invested in last year is called Retail Aware. They're based here in Chicago. The founder's name is Keith Fix. Uh, Cleveland Avenue led that round. And I think they're addressing a pain point that we've seen in our learnings as a consumer fund, which is in-person shopping is a dead zone for data. No one knows what's going on. If you want to understand how particularly in food and bev, how your product is, is turning, you have to subscribe to Nielsen or Spins data. It's 
inaccurate, it's siloed, it isn't even close to the type of data modern day marketers have become accustomed to in digital. And Retail Aware, we think, is the solution to that problem that we've seen on many occasions in businesses that rely on retail or other in real life shopping experiences. And so what they do, just to give you a quick overview, is there a, a hardware-enabled software play? They have sensors that detect motion as well as heat that allow for businesses, retailers, or brands to track foot traffic in a store as well as conversion, meaning literally detecting when someone has picked something off a shelf. And that opens up a whole world of possibilities in terms of being able, brand managers, to be able to A-B test different locations, different end cap designs. They can... Um, do things like eye level understanding, like let's actually validate that if something's at eye level, it results in higher conversion. Um, and I mean, there's a whole host of other industry specific opportunities across grocery, across consumer electronics, across massive big box retailers. So that's what I'm really excited about that I think kind of shows where there's value in having a diversified or a split focus on consumer as well as tech. I'm pretty fascinated about that one. I'd love to have Keith on the show for sure. So I may be uh, sure. tapping you for an introduction happen. there. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I'd i love to uh, sort of pivot a little bit to talk yeah. about, you have a very unique background in that you have spent um, a good amount of time in private equity and you've now spent a good amount of time in venture capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of listeners of the show are you know, going to business school, thinking about business school earlier in the career, trying to weigh... Uh, Do I want to go into venture capital? Do I want to go into private equity? What's the difference? Mm -hmm. Um, I I would love to hear you kind of opine on some of the biggest differences that you have found between the two types of investing. And and we can dive in a bit further, but uh, just generally speaking, uh, what are some of the kind of key differences you found so far? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think philosophically, the investment um, dynamics are very different, right? In private equity, uh, and, and maybe a fund overall is targeting the same level of return, like 3X is kind of a good fund in private equity. I think most in venture would take it, even though they're swinging for larger returns than three. But in private equity, the ambition is that every deal you do will be 3X versus in venture, you know that there's going to be some 10Xs, hopefully like some 50Xs. Um, and also some zeros. And so if you start with that as your basis for understanding how deals are done, I think you can very quickly see how skill sets differ, how, you know, writing a memo may differ, how the quantitative analysis may differ. Um, And so I would say, based on that, the biggest difference for me is private equity is very data oriented. It's, It's a lot about understanding how to underwrite the fundamentals of a business and not so much focus on total market opportunity, uh, founder, the vision of the business. You've probably, by time you're reaching middle market private equity opportunity, the business has already well-established product market fit. So there's no real concern over that anymore. And it's more about understanding how to accelerate growth, how to expand margins and do basically ultimately anything that will help pay down third-party debt faster because that's how an LBO ultimately, that's the leverage part of the LBO, right? Whereas in venture, you know, it's about finding those outliers amongst the rest of the group that are going to be, you know, the one X's or the zeros. And hopefully you find those, those one or two per fund that 
returns the whole fund or better. Um, so it's a very different skill set for sure. And, you know, you've been candid with us the, the, the whole show. You've kept it real. So I got to <laughs> dig a bit deeper and talk here about uh, some of the biggest likes and dislikes maybe of, of private equity and or venture capital. You, you have such sure. an interesting experience. So it, it's a really, I think, uh, pressing question from my end. Yeah, definitely. Um, likes and dislikes. So I guess I'll, I'll preface this by saying, I think being an associate at a, you know, 200 person private equity fund is very different from being kind of a VP level role at a two person venture fund. So certainly my experiences are not representative of the industries as a whole, but some of the things that ultimately led me away from private equity and into venture were honestly just the types of people I was interacting with on a day-to-day -day basis. What I mean by that is in private equity, there are way more gatekeepers, meaning before you even get to talk to a management team, you have to go through an entire process with a broker who's usually an investment bank where they're the ones presenting all of the um, deal memorandums, you know, you're signing NDAs, you're going through data rooms. And then once you've digested all that and submitted a preliminary bid on what you might pay for the business, then you get, you know, five hours in a room with a management team. And that management team, at least at the stage I was at, probably aren't even the original founders of the business. They've probably gone through multiple transactions in the past the original founders probably been bought out. That's not always true. I certainly had original founders that I worked with, but I found it way, way more exciting to every day know that I was going to be talking to a founder who's probably way more passionate about the problem they're solving um, and not having to deal with gatekeepers and playing that very process-oriented game to get FaceTime with management teams. So I think that was the biggest uh, draw to me is just, the energy of founders and how much more interesting it is for me to talk to founders every day versus investment bankers. Yeah, it's it's such a great point. I can't say I spent time in private equity, but uh, I have plenty of friends from uh, from Notre Dame that 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 have that do. Um, and look, they love their jobs, and so it's great. <laughs> but but uh, no, it's it's. I such mean, look, the things point. I miss about private equity. There are certainly things I miss about private equity. <laughs> One is, you know, it's uh, you know what you need to do, like. If you get a deal, you know how to build something into an LBO model. And like, there's going to be an answer that comes out of that model of whether you should invest or not. Um, that level of kind of binary decision-making based in quantitative evaluation is certainly not always there in venture. Uh, there's a lot more ambiguity. Most of the time, you know, the deals that we're looking at at the seed stage involve founding teams who probably don't even have a CFO and couldn't tell you, you know, how their financial statements, uh, you know, like their, their own accounting policies. So, you know, there's a lot more ambiguity, even when there is data available and oftentimes there isn't. So those are, that's definitely an aspect of the job that I'm still improving at and getting used to. I, this that actually brings up a question I have is, is somebody who works at a fund that also 
um, doesn't you know really lead investments. How mm-hmm. do you sort of walk that line in due diligence? Where you you mentioned, I mean, it sounds like you and yeah. your partners, you are still metric oriented. You do you do still want to see some forms of of you know traction or or understanding the unit economics. But yeah. when a deal can be hot, when there can be a big name VC involved in the round, and and you're yeah. you know not one of the big main investors, you want to run your process. You want to do do your due diligence, but you also know that you're sort of actively selling yourself into the deal while analyzing sure. the deal to be sure if you want to do it. How have you found, you know, strategies of kind of walking that line or what's your general sort of advice you would give on that? Yeah. So I think right off the bat, even for lead investors, more so than ever before, capital is a commodity these days and everyone has to prove what their value add is. So that's not unique to, to followers or leads. Um, I think we have done that with the businesses who we have invested in. Our main value add that we articulate is one, we have that strategic financial capability that I mentioned is often lacking in original founding teams. Um, and, and frankly, a lot of times our diligence becomes you know, KPI dashboards that companies refer to when they're making strategic business decisions or raising the next round, which is the second prong of our value add, which is we've done you know, fundraising and M&A processes at the level that our portfolio companies are trying to achieve. And so when it comes to prepping a deck, prepping a data room, making sure that we've accurately conveyed our unit economics for the next fund that's going to be leading the Series A or Series B or growth equity round, those are areas we where we think we're value add. And more importantly, value add beyond probably another follow-on fund. So where, where we think, um, you know, we try to strike a great balance between we're not taking up a founder's time if they don't need it, we're not requiring board seats, um, but we also think we can be a lot more value add than your typical kind of second institutional investor on the cap table in a seed round. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is being laser focused on and organized on how we prioritize diligence items. So. The very first thing we do when we look at a business, you know, assuming we're interested in pursuing it, is say, what are like the three things about this business that we need to be convinced of for us to invest, given that we may have two or three hours total on a phone or on a Zoom with the founder before we have to make a decision, sometimes not even that much. Um, and just be really super laser focused on those three things and only ask for data requests or questions that support those three things. And to some extent, you know, other things we have to rely on the diligence of the lead investor to check the box on areas that we're not laser focused on or have an intuition that those areas are already satisfactory for us. Now that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. It's such a great point too about, and especially now I think this market more than ever, or at least, you know, I would say probably in the past six to nine months, the time for diligence to be completed, it just gets compressed more and more and more. Um, sure. And it's, it's hard to see that, you know, materially uh, changing anytime soon. Um, mm-hmm. No, I, I, I'd love to, to, to maybe focus a little bit uh, in our remaining time on um, your experiences, you know, living in Chicago, you know, you're from Texas. There's a, there's a huge burgeoning, <laughs> burgeoning tech scene down in Texas of Austin, Texas. Uh, so I would love to hear about your, your general thoughts on, you know, Chicago and, and your decision to, to stick around here and thoughts about Austin, just, just all that good stuff. 
well, my wife's from the Midwest, so this is all really just one grand scheme to, to trap me up here. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> we've had a great experience in Chicago. I think, you know, in the, the three years that I've lived here and actually experienced downtown, there's no other city, I think, that comes as alive in the summer. I certainly miss uh, home sweet home during the winter months. But um, but for sure, the city is is electric in the summer, um, which I'm very excited looking out the window now. It's actually sunny outside. So I, I was I was about to say, I swear, <laughs> I swear to God, it's sunny with no clouds out for the first time in 43 days. Yeah. And actually, surprisingly, my golf game has gotten better <laughs> since I've been playing less. So I think that tells you that it's more of a mental game than a physical one. But <laughs> that's uh that's 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 unsurprising uh i think for anyone who who plays golf yeah that makes a ton of sense um i i think one of the the last kind of important questions um just based on the way you approach business school and the success you had um at getting a full-time vc job that that you love and the experience you've had what are kind of your main piece of advice that you would give you know people looking at business school as as sort of an on ramp to venture? What are kind of the main things you would you know encourage them to try and do to really take the, the biggest advantage they can of that experience? Uh, start a podcast. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> done. Episode cut. We're done. <laughs> no, I mean I think you know you and I have both experienced this. I'm sure. I mean it's an apprenticeship model. Um, and that's not always fair, but I think to be successful, you have to kind of be in the right place at the right time, already getting reps. And, uh, you know, if the fund you're already working at can hire full time, that is easy. If they can't, you know, you have to be already interacting with other investors who may be co-investors or share similar strategies or, um, you know, at least you, when you, when you reach out to them, you have to be able to be articulate about deals that are out in the market or that have been done recently. And so because of all of those things, it's one of those iterative processes that like you have to be in it to get in it. Um, which again, is not always fair, but I think anything you can do to kind of fake it until you make it is the right decision. So seriously, I mean, content creation, I think is a big piece of that, whether it's a podcast or getting on Twitter or angel investing or doing anything you can to document that you're getting the reps and doing at least some aspect of the job before you actually are doing the job just tells people that they're taking less of a risk to hire you. And I think what some people don't realize is, you know, a big part of the compensation in venture capital is essentially equity in the fund in the form of carried interest. And to get a job, particularly post MBA, where carry is expected and probably pretty often given as part of a comp package, you have to convince someone to give up a piece of their carry pie and like convince them that you're going to make the overall pie bigger. And so whether that's sourcing more deals, sourcing better deals, picking better deals, um, or adding more value to the deals you do. One of those things has to check the box and makes, make people believe that you're going to make the pie bigger for everyone. And so to the extent you can convince people that you're already doing that, um, I think it's a necessity. Yeah, I, I would agree with literally all of those points. I love the way you framed it too, of the, the piece of the pie and the carry conversation. And I think, I think a lot of times too, sometimes advice can, that's, that's sort of, um, high level or, or talking about, you know, what you have to convince interview interviewers of, uh, you know, to get the job. It can, it can always sound a little bit daunting. I know it did for me when I would listen to exactly yeah. like advice for this. And I would say just adding on to that, like 
finding your niche, finding what really interests you, not just going after Web3 or NFT because you think it's the hottest area <laughs> in venture right now. I mean, when I started out, my like behind, getting it, the way. say again. I'm very behind on that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, so, so am I. So am I. There's so many smart people out there running at it. Like I had Stephen Cook on this show a year ago, and that guy is so immersed in that ecosystem. From here on out, I'm just going to text Stephen Cook, be like, Stephen, tell me what to think of this. Um, I'm yeah. kidding, but not really. No, I think it's... Uh, <laughs> But when I started my my sort of progression to VC, it was there was, you know, the really hot areas and and you kind of like you try and tell yourself, well, this is what's hot right now. So I'm just going to go deep on it. But if it's not something that just naturally intellectually stimulates and, and, and drives your curiosity, it's going to be a chore. It's going to feel like work. So I, I would say to anybody, like find stuff that naturally interests you, that you naturally want to work on every single day. And ultimately, like you'll get to a place where you need to be if you just take a day at a time and focus on the things that really, really, uh, you know, you're really, really passionate about. So yeah, but yeah totally. I, I, and I think also find things that fit your story, because again, it's all about storytelling, convincing people that you're making that five figure. If you've been, you know, an operator in the past, maybe your best bet and first entry into VC is a VC that focuses on the industry that you're in. Um, even if that's not your number one priority, it's an easy story to tell. So I think it's all about crafting that believable story, at least to get your foot in the door. And then from there, maybe you expand your purview. I couldn't, yeah, I could not agree more with that also. I think the story part is so essential and it does take like time. It takes like a strategic mind towards what are the, like I show up and this is even true for non-business school. It's just true in general, I think for VC, maybe even mm -hmm. any job, but like, what do I have on my resume right now to date? What story does that tell up into this point? Okay, how can I, as easy as possible, craft, like begin to craft that story in a way that makes sense for the job I want while still bridging the experiences I used to have? And hey, maybe it's an area that like, if you, if you were running a digital health business called FitFam, like maybe that operator experience, like you don't want to focus on health and wellness startups in the future. But if that's the first internship <laughs> you're going to get, get your foot in the door, like it makes a ton of sense. Um, I'm glad I didn't have to rely on that, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I, I think FitFam, like I think that's got to be resurrected at some point, even just the name. Like I'm a huge, I'm very bullish on the name. Maybe um, I can just license the name. Yeah, a little side money. Um, no, Connor, I want to thank you so much for hopping on Chicago Capital. Uh, I knew this was going to be a blast. It did not disappoint. Um, if people want to find you, follow you, learn more about what you're working on, uh, maybe reach out to you as a potential investor, where can they go? Where, th where can they find you? Yeah, sure. LinkedIn, you'll you'll find me there on Twitter. I'm at Connor Ryan 2013 and bridgeinvestments.com. Awesome. Connor, thank you so much. Take care. Thanks, Matt. Bye.